according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me again, if you would, in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, we are in episode 10 of Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. An episode that's titled Jesus' Last Sermon. We understand this is his last public sermon. He will have much more to say to his disciples in private. But this is his final address in the temple. His final public message with uh, his enemies present. And uh, boy, he doesn't hold back. He hits them with woe after woe after woe after woe. Seven of them. Or eight of them. If you uh, believe that verse 14 belongs there. Uh, In any event, we got a good start on this last week. We're going to resume where we left off. So let's take a moment for silent prayer and make sure each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the pattern that we have, the example he set, his passion for your truth in uh, speaking the truth in love. And Father, his um, faithfulness to uh, deliver all things, uh, not shrinking away from declaring anything that is profitable. And Father, uh, in, uh, in this message, we see uh, what we may be called upon to do on occasion, uh, to simply teach the truth and lay it out there. And if folks are offended, folks are offended. But it's the truth, Father, that, uh, that is defended going forth. So, Father, I thank you for that pattern, and I thank you for the encouragement we have. As we study the Scriptures today, I pray that we would be humble to receive the Word implanted. And, Father, I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We were dealing with the chair of Moses, where we ran out of time last week. So, very quickly, let's just get up to speed. You, uh, you might remember that uh, the Mark account and the Luke account are the very short ones, uh, just three verses each. Mark 12, verses 38 through 40, and Luke 20, verses 45 through 47, very short accounts. Uh, The Matthew account is the much more lengthy one, and so uh, we read the Mark and Luke records last week, and we'll touch on them again coming up. Uh, We don't have to turn there at this moment. Uh, But in Matthew 23, we see Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. So he's got a dual audience. There are other occasions where he's speaking just to the crowds, and uh, his disciples happen to be there, but they're not the intended uh, audience for the message the crowds are. There are other cases where he's speaking to his disciples. And crowds happen to be present, but they are not the intended recipients of the message the disciples are. There are other occasions, such as here, where both the crowds and his disciples are intended recipients of his message. In other words, he has them in mind as being the people to whom Uh, the address is directed. And in the case where it's a dual message, it becomes very interesting because uh, it serves as a uh, warning. And I think the crowds have to be warned in one sense, but then the disciples have to be warned in an entirely different sense. And so it kind of becomes a message embedded within another message, as it were, when uh, I think when you understand uh, what all is being spoken here in this chapter. So he speaks to the crowds and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. 
Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. That little phrase there gets overlooked, or the recognition gets overlooked, that there is a legitimate authority that is inherent within Moses. But that's authority based on Moses, uh, not authority based on what the usurpers are claiming for themselves. Uh, did God put them in this chair, or did they seat themselves in this chair? We want to be very clear on that. And uh, we, as we were running out of time, we uh, introduced an aspect of, of uh, what I called illegitimate leadership. And um, perhaps we need to explore that a little bit more. So <laughs> this is what we're dealing with. All right. But he says, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. So far as it's contained in Moses, you're accountable. But do not do according to their deeds. In other words, please don't become imitators of these particular usurpers. Uh, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Their character is such that they are clearly not God's instruments. They are clearly somebody else's instruments. And that becomes clear, too, as we see all of the satanic imitation of what's, what's uh, portrayed here in this, in this chapter. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. Uh, legitimate spiritual leadership is not doing it to be noticed by men, but they're doing it in the sight of God. They're doing it to be observed by God. He is the one with whom we have to do. And uh, a, a true and legitimate leader will be doing his work as unto the Lord and uh, instead of to be viewed by men. They broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Uh, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by men. That was perhaps the highest of all these things that they lusted after. And then uh, verses 8 through 10 we're going to handle as a unit. All right, now before I get too lost, let's review the points we've already studied. Jesus' final public message, this is point one in the outline. Jesus' final public message is for the crowds and his disciples. It's a two-pronged message with two intended audiences, but it is the final public message. Still to come are his upper room discourse and the Mount Olivet discourse. And these are uh, more private messages as we understand them. Upper room discourse is John 13 through 17. Upper, uh, Mount Olivet discourse is the next two chapters here of Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25. I have given this chapter the label of the great hypocrisy discourse, point two. This chapter is not typically included in Matthew's five great discourses. You know, you read a bunch of commentaries and every commentary you turn to will tell you that Matthew records five great discourses. And in enumerating those five great discourses, this chapter gets left out. Matthew 11 gets left out. Uh, I think if we go ahead and give this chapter a label... In terms of the great hypocrisy discourse with seven woes and an, an, an amazing application, then uh, that gives us a sixth discourse for the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have a uh, prejudice against the number six and you want the number seven for biblical uh, numerology reasons, then you can include Matthew 11 verses 2 through 30. It would be the shortest of the great discourses, but it's not exactly short in, in a way. And uh, it is also a woe message, I should point out. It's got some woe components to it. Um, so if we label it the discourse on John the Baptist, then we can think of Matthew's seven great discourses, and we have a, uh, an outline for the Gospel of Matthew that 
has a, uh, a nice biblical significant number like seven associated with those great discourses. All right, and so perhaps someday when the Bolander Study Bible gets published, you will read in the introduction to Matthew, you will read, Matthew is the wonderful gospel of discourse with seven um, extensive discourse messages recorded. It is what makes Matthew unique. Uh, Mark and Luke don't record nearly the, the narrative that Matthew records in the discourses that he cites. The introduction establishes the theme for the entire chapter. So truthfully, if we do our homework well enough in these first 12 verses, then the rest of the chapter will just fall into place. The, the, the understanding will, will be a matter of course because we have in the introduction here, um, we have really what encapsulates the whole chapter. Uh, why were the, the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites? Why were they subject to all these woes? Because they were exalting themselves. They needed to be humbled. Uh, those who humble themselves will be exalted. These are the themes here that, that really fill the entire chapter. So that's point three. The introduction establishes the theme for the entire chapter. So point A, Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. Jesus set the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it. That's Matthew twenty-two forty-four. And I said I would find another reference for you this week, and I forgot to do that. Let me go ahead and pull it up here. It's in Hebrews. See, if you type in H-E-B, then it doesn't send you to the grocery store. It brings up Hebrews in, the, in your favorite Bible. Um, here it is. Hebrews 5.4 is a passage that I, I relate to the humility of Christ in terms of claiming a seat or taking a throne or feeling entitled to something. And it says in Hebrews 5.4, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. But then notice in verse uh, 4, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also said in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So, uh, not claiming it for himself, not demanding what he thinks he's entitled to. I think, uh, and again, we have the references here to Psalm 110, to Psalm 2, and I think uh, we have something here that's consistent with the example of thrones. Now, in, in this chapter, we're dealing with thrones and seats. Uh, but seated in the throne, in the chair of Moses, uh, I don't think is entirely um, out of context or out of the scope of, of things as we talk about Christ and his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So if you want to add um, Hebrews 5.4 on to the end of Matthew 22.44, I think you will do well to relate um, his priesthood context as well as uh, what's being spoken of there in Matthew 22.44. All right. So Jesus sets the example of not taking his seat until the Father granted it, not assuming 
that because uh, you're not promoted until the Father promotes you. Not assuming that you've earned something or you've deserved something and that you can lay claim to it yourself. I mean, if you truly want to operate on the basis of what you've earned or deserved, then you just abandon grace. And when you abandon grace, uh, you're out of the Father's plan. The Father's plan is grace. And we don't operate based on what we've earned and deserved. We operate based on what Christ has earned and deserved. And it's His riches. It's God's riches at Christ's expense that we... Uh, Identify with grace in the way that we do. Satan and his brood claim seats for themselves, and that's the pattern. Satan claiming his seats in Isaiah 14:13. His brood of vipers claiming their seats uh, for themselves, and that's the pattern. Seating themselves in the chair of Moses, all right, appointing themselves as as uh, where they are and what they're doing. And as we mentioned last week, under subpoints one and two, James and John were vulnerable to this prideful rebellion. When uh, when they tried to get their mother in on the act and when they tried to um, try to score some assigned seating in the millennial kingdom. <laughs> right. Grant that we can sit. These two sons of mine can sit one on your right and one on your left. And uh, Jesus said that's not that he himself wasn't even in charge of seating. It was his father who assigned seating that he himself is subject to sit where his father grants him to sit. And, uh, and I think we need to be mindful of these principles for our own application. Nebuchadnezzar testified to the great reality of God's dealings against satanic pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. That when you are, are this whole attitude of seating yourself and, and achieving your own glory or uh, the things that uh, these Pharisees are all wrapped up in, building their own names, building their own legacies, um, that is, that's following after the example of Satan. And we've got to reject that. The Father is able to humble those who walk in pride. And um, you want another verse to go with Daniel 4.37? How about uh, Job 41? And the last verse on Job 41 is verse 34. When he ends his essay on the majesty of Leviathan, that's the dragon, all right? When he ends his essay on the majesty of Leviathan, he says, Nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. All right? And so we have this. We have this dragon we have this serpent we have this viper we have this leviathan we have this satanic adversary who is the champion of pride king over all the sons of pride he was the first one to fall a third of the angels went with him and now the fallen human race is under his dominion king over all the sons of pride and um so add job forty-one thirty-four to your scriptures there when Nebuchadnezzar testified to the great reality of God's dealings against satanic pride. This is what the angelic conflict is. Day by day, we've got to wake up and decide who are we serving. Today, am I a living sacrifice? Today, am I walking in humility? What does God expect of us but to walk humbly before our God? Okay? Because if we're not, if we're conformed to this world, then we're just going off according to the realms of pride. We better figure that out now because if we don't figure it out in class, he'll teach us in life. And uh, the humility lessons in life are a lot harder than the humility lessons in class. So I recommend we learn the humility lessons in class. Um, 
before the divine discipline teaches us the remedial course. All right, point B then, when we ran out of time. The chair of Moses has an inherent authority. The chair of Moses has an inherent authority. Obedience to the word of God is always expected, despite the illegitimate leadership. You know, it's powerful the way that God's word works. God's word works. And I, I heard about a man years ago that was saved listening to a Herbert W. Armstrong radio broadcast. And Herbert W. Armstrong was the worldwide Church of God guy. His teachings were heretical and, and some terrible things that came through that ministry. And yet, on the radio, as the Word of God was being spoken, the power of the Word of God led that man to repentance and he got saved listening to the radio. Okay, I think that there's, there are any number of saved individuals in Roman Catholic churches. Not because of the Roman Catholic Church, but because there's Bibles there. And because people can be saved believing in Jesus Christ no matter what the religion tells them. See? And uh, we, we ought to be thankful for that, for the power of the Word of God as it goes forth. And uh, so the chair of Moses, if Moses wrote it, if it's inspired in Scripture, there is authority based on the authority of Scripture. And so if it's, if, if it's in Moses... Obey Moses. You're not obeying the, the illegitimate leadership. You're obeying Moses. And, uh, and that's what it comes down to. It's no different than today in pastors and churches. You're not obeying your pastor. You're persuaded by the Word of God. You're obeying the authority of the Word of God. See? And if the pastor's message is coming from the Word of God, then that's what you're obeying is the Word of God. And, uh, but if the communicator is a hypocrite, if he's saying one thing and doing another... If he's telling you that you have to do such and such, but he himself isn't doing such and such, well then, why is that? <laughs> How come the rules don't apply to you, as it were? And that's what we're seeing here. Um, so there's other things that we can deal with as it relates to those uh, concepts, but I'm just going to move on now to summarize the hypocrisy under point C. The hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees is summarized. And we have this taking us through the rest of verse 3 and down through verse 7. We've got a little paragraph here, a narrative that describes their way of life. And it's unfortunate when such attitudes uh, sit underneath our thinking and our stewardship. And uh, so I think it's important that we identify it. Is this passage a complete, exhaustive doctrinal development on hypocrisy no we would need to include a lot of other passages as well but it does serve as a wonderful springboard and it does serve as a uh, passage where you've got a, a concentrated um, amount of information so you could use it as the basis of a store of a study and then flesh it out with other passages that you might relate to the text that we have here hypocrisy of scribes and pharisees is summarized and uh, clearly he's saying uh, obey what they tell you that comes from Moses, but don't do according to their deeds. Uh, there's hypocrisy at work. And, and when you see the, the full detail on this, it's no wonder why seven times they're going to be called um, hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. Okay? Um, verse 16, they're called blind guides, but then in the next one they're connected back to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. All right, so let's look at it. First of all, their speech does not match their actions. Their speech does not match their actions. Danger side number one. <laughs> all right. Danger side number one. 
And this would be true in any relationship and orientation to, to uh, authority. Okay? Not just for Bible teachers, not just for pastors. I mean, I think it's critical in that realm. But uh, for um, husbands, fathers, if they're going to say one thing and do another thing, you know, you're dating a guy and he says he loves God and the Bible and he says that church is a priority. Are you going to evaluate his words? Are you going to evaluate his actions? And how are you going to determine whether they're consistent or not or whether there's a disconnect and uh, things of that nature? The speech match up with actions and um, evaluate it carefully. So, uh, again, we have the second part of verse 3 there. They uh, say things and do not do them. Their actions are different from what they say. And that, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. What else do they do? They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. You know, a finger is not a whole lot of work. Okay? But if finger work is just too much to ask, then you've got to ask yourself, um, why is that? They control others, but exempt themselves. They control others, but exempt themselves. Tying up the heavy burdens. And uh, they have complete control over what has been tied up. The content of it, the weight of it, the, spe- the specific nature of that burden. And then they place that burden on other people, not themselves. So you've got a tying up process, and then you've got the laying on process. And they're in charge of it all. And they're controlling people's lives. You know, it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like Congress. Am I wrong? Does Congress not pass laws that the population of America has to abide by and who do they exempt virtually with every law they pass? Themselves. Themselves. In virtually every law that they pass. And so you ask yourself, well, if this is such a wonderful situation, (laughs) why are you not participating? (laughs) And you ask yourself this. So they control others but exempt themselves. And uh, here you have all these cults and all these things and, and, and the, the rules don't apply to them. Why is that? Why are they exempt? Why do they have their own universe that they live in? See? And everybody else has all these rules that they have to follow. Okay? You know. I've been following the news on the uh, Osama bin Laden deal and all that. And here's this, you know, devout Muslim Mujahideen and devout Muslim this and that and, and, and gaining recruits by uh, preaching this pure form of Islam and all that, and the, and the, the demands of the, of the Taliban that women have to be all, you know, burkered over and, and <laughs> you know, we hate to have a, uh, a stray ankle showing there that might lead men to these impure thoughts and all that. And then what does he have in his own little hideout when they, when they, uh, he's got this big old pornography stash in his, in his, uh, hideout there. You think, well, how about that? Okay. Controlling others, but exempting themselves. Okay? You know, this guy and his three wives, and I don't understand it anyway. But All right. But think about 
pastors where this could be a snare. Think about how when you're teaching something, but then you're not making it the application yourself. Does that destroy a flock? And um, considering, of course, that when... One of, the, one of the worst things about this hypocrisy is not only is it just simply on its face wrong, but think about where it leaves you when you are the hypocrite. You're in a position where you can't risk the exposure. You have to keep things hidden. You have to keep, uh, I mean, yes, you have to live with yourself as the hypocrite, but then in addition to that, you have to protect that from coming out. Which means that the God you're serving, you know, the, the adversary who's manipulating you, has strings he can pull over you. Because you don't want this to be known. Yeah, you know, if, if my people find out that, that you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm abusing them and I'm slapping them in the face. This is what Corinth went through with their false teachers that they're being abused and they're being, you know, when widows find out that their whole life savings has gone to this televangelist snake and and they're left destitute because the widow's houses have been devoured. We have that in um, Mark and Luke here. You know, they, they how much does that hurt when then they find out that they're supporting this lavish lifestyle, they're supporting this uh, getaway bungalow in the Virgin Islands and they're supporting... Uh, the, the mistress that lives in that getaway bungalow in the Virgin Islands. And, and they're finding out that, well, wait a minute, all this money was given as unto the Lord. And these hypocrites that are, that are ripping them off, it's horrible. And it, and it just it, it devastates their faith. It, it, it turns a lot of people off. There are people that won't have anything to do with Christianity because their view is everybody's like that. The whole religion is like that. There's not a pastor on earth that, that isn't just milking his flock for the money. Okay? It's really interesting. I had a... Well, let me move on. Well, before I move on. I had a co-worker who um, thought that... He had that opinion. Worked for the sheriff's department. In his mind, every preacher was just simply milking a religious system so he didn't have to actually work a real job. Okay? And basically, he could drive the finest cars. He could wear the finest suits. He could have... Uh, you know, everyone with the respectful greetings in the marketplaces, everyone called them reverend and this and that. And, um, and then he met me and he was shocked. He said it made no sense to him at all. It was, it was just shattering his whole worldview. He, he, he didn't understand. I'm, I'm working outside the church. I'm, I'm working at night so I could pastor during the day. I'm driving a, a beat up Chevy Nova. Okay. 1987 Chevy Nova. It wasn't his image of what pastors were, kind of a thing. And so it, you know, formed the basis for some conversations. All right, what else do these guys do? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. That's terrible. Okay, I'll think of it. They do everything for their public image. They do everything for their public image. Public image is the motivator for what they do. In verse 5, they do all their deeds, all their deeds, everything. 100% of what they're doing has one purpose. What's the purpose clause? To be noticed by men. To be noticed by men. That is the one and only goal. So that people will observe how awesome we are. 
<laughs> okay? And um, if you remember, hold your finger there, glancing back to the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord already addressed this some three years prior, early in his ministry, or two years prior. Early in his ministry, the Lord dealt with this. Matthew chapter 6. Sermon on the Mount was fairly early in the Galilean ministry, so yeah, about two years have gone by from between the Sermon on the Mount and the uh, the uh, great hypocrisy discourse of Matthew 22 or Matthew 23. It says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them." So it's not only unbelievers like Pharisees, like like the the crowd in Matthew 23 that can do this. Believers can do this. And we've got, we've got to guard against it. It says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. If your motivation is earthly, you've just forsaken all heavenly reward. So who should we be practicing our righteousness before? Before our Father. He's the one before whom we have to do. He's the one that we are serving during the time of our earthly sojourn upon this earth. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. If that's your goal, standing back there by that little brown box, waving a flag, saying, look at me. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's a phrase my wife would like because it's an, actually there's an idiom at work there that references a receipt, Okay. An actual receipt, like a sales receipt, or a, um, you know, and I'm married an accountant, so she's big on receipts. And um, they have received a receipt. Their whole reward has, is provided and receipt has been issued. That's their reward. They impressed a human being. <laughs> or they impressed two human beings. Or they impressed five human beings. Whatever they did, that is their reward. And you think that is what they threw away eternal glory for so that a person could be impressed or a group of people could be impressed. You know, that's a uh, man. If that's your idol, if that's your God, that's a vicious God. Because trying to impress people just gets harder and harder and harder and harder on the whole scale of uh, being impressed. All right. Because think about it. If you got impressed by something human last week, well, what's it going to take to impress you next time? What's it going to take to impress you the time after that? Think about it. Okay, so I'm impressed. Now what? <laughs> it's a terrible way to operate. And so if somebody else measures up to what you just did, well, that doesn't impress me anymore. Right? Well, that's not so impressive. Joe did that last week. You've got to top what he did. And see, and if more people, if four or five people can do what Joe did, well, now I'm not so impressed anymore because now it kind of seems like anybody can do it. So in order to truly be impressed, we just got to start out doing things. All right. So, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will, uh, what is done in secret will reward you. 
Remember, we serve the invisible God. So our invisible service is perfectly pleasing in His sight. And we ought to function invisibly as far as not broadcasting what we're doing to the world to be noticed by them. Same thing with prayer. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. And I, I keep an eye on this. We, we don't have a, an issue with this in our prayer meetings. But if, if there was ever someone that I kind of got the sense that, well, they're just kind of showing off. You know, I mean, they're just kind of, they're being wordy and trying to impress people with, uh, with their language and whatever. There's no place for that, okay? I don't think they'd last long in our prayer meetings anyway because we're too, we're too real, <laughs> you know? Just pull them aside and say, hey, can you relax a little bit, you know? Do you, do you talk like that when you're on the phone? I mean, just, we're talking to God. Let's be ourselves. Let's pour out our hearts. We're not, we're not, it's not a Shakespearean soliloquy. We're not here to, you know, We've got to cut the dramatics. Standing and praying in the synagogues and on the street corners so they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, again, there's that idiom, they have the reward in full. They were noticed by men. They impressed somebody with their praying ability. And then the third example. Oh no, it goes on to say, when you pray, go into your inner room, the King James closet, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You don't need an audience to be impressed with your, your prayerful eloquence. You just need to very privately go to your Father and pour your heart out towards Him. All right, so that was his message two years ago in the Sermon on the Mount. Here he is again two days before his crucifixion. This would be uh, Wednesday, April 1st. Ah, so this woe message is an April Fool's message. How about that? Uh, isn't that something? They're doing everything for the public image to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. You know what a phylactery is? Yeah, it's a little box. It's a little box um, either on the forehead or strapped to the arms or something. It's a little leather box that contains your... Um, I meant to bring them with me. It contains your Bible verses, okay? It contains your memory verses, and uh, right now we've got four three by, uh, three by five cards with our memory verses, okay? And, uh, you know, you can put them in a container of whatever sort. And if you only have four, you don't need a great big container, okay? Now, if you had, say, a thousand of these verses and you need a great big box, uh, and then, you, you know, you walk around with this big old thing strapped to your forehead and everybody's just stunned, man... Because a, a smaller box than that just couldn't hold all the, all the scripture verses you got written in there. Man, you're just awesome, you know. So they broaden their phylacteries, uh, they lengthen the tassels of their garments, and tassels were a, a facet for their uh, prayers, a little de uh, device uh, related to their meditations and their prayers. And the longer they were, the uh, more impressed people were. They had more to pray about. They had more devotion. They had different things related to that. To be noticed by men. Everything for public image. And the sad thing is, what's the reality in the public image? If the, if the reality isn't you, well then you're living your life trying to prove that you're somebody you're not. And pretty soon your image has gotten so carried away, you know, you can't measure up to that. Nobody could. What are you, what are you really doing? Alright. And yet, to me, there's a snare that happens a lot in some uh, modern churches and things, you know, um, trying to do things for appearance sake, 
trying to do things so people don't find out that I've got struggles or people don't know that my, my marriage needs prayer. Or people don't know that whatever. I just got to keep up appearances, you know, for appearance sake. You know, at some point we say there is no appearance sake. Let's just for Christ's sake speak the truth to one another in love and just fall on our knees and, and love one another, bear one another's burdens. All right. They crave social courtesies of respect. This was actually the biggest item. They crave social courtesies of respect. I mean, I think craving is a strong enough term for it. It's almost like an addiction. It's almost like, a, you know, the colonel years ago, a pastor theme taught human approbation lust. Remember that? And um, how? Human approbation lust. And think about how many people you've known over the years enslaved to that pursuit. Wanting the approval of man. Wanting people to think well of me. Terrified that people are going to think poorly of me. And uh, I'm, I'm less concerned about how my sin brings shame upon Christ and I'm more concerned about how my image is going to be harmed in the eyes of other people. How's that for a perspective that's totally off kilter? Social respect and courtesies. Uh, for them, this was their entire world. I'll, I'll illustrate a little bit with the, the Mishnah and show you some things. Because it's actually... Um, necessary if we're going to understand verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 comes back to 6 and 7. It has nothing to do with, a lot of times, it has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It has nothing to do with people lock in on that, don't call anyone on earth your father, and people just think that that assumes to the Roman Catholic priesthood, you know, and, and father so-and-so in the local parish. No, it has nothing to do with subsequent church history or, or the, the practices of Roman Catholicism has everything to do with what the practices were of Mishnaic Judaism of the day. And that's what's addressed here in verses 6 and 7. And that's what's warned about in 8 through 10. The things that they crave, they love the place of honor at banquets. That was a subject of a previous message as well. When he spoke about, you know, assuming a seat you're not entitled to and then getting embarrassed when you get pushed down on the, on the precedence list as it were. Um, but they loved being up front. They loved the fact that their position automatically gave them uh, preferred seating over the lesser people. Okay. That uh, it was a, uh, at a banquet, what a, what a delight to have, I mean, to even know a Pharisee, to even know a scribe, because they didn't associate with riffraff, you know. So if you actually personally knew one of them and they deigned to speak to you, or they graced your home with their, you know, their acceptance of a dinner invitation. That's a, that's a highlight right there, man. And so, obviously, if someone like that comes into your home, you're gonna seat them in the in the prime spot. You're gonna put them on the on the uh, the honored couch, as it were, and uh, and different things there. All right. Uh, the chief seats in the synagogues. And uh, wherever it is, you know, and uh, hmm, different aspects like that. You know, I wonder if some of it was like a great big 
Sunday school class, you know, <laughs> with, with little kids that never grew up. You know, and there's always one, it was me in my generation, but it was always one who was always sitting right there in the front row, raised their hand for every question, didn't matter. Teacher, teacher, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay. And, um, and, and then finally the teacher says, okay, well, you, you answer the last nine questions. Let's try to get some other students involved here and see if we can. And typically, you know, a lot of the other students are happy just to go ahead and let them answer all the questions anyway. It takes the pressure off. But if that is simply a, a pride thing coming out, then that's got to get squashed. And these, these rabbis, these, these Pharisees, I mean, it's one thing to, to confess to that from, say, kindergarten. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if that's still the attitude after you've gotten through graduate school, why, uh, what's really happening here? So the, uh, the chief seats in the synagogues, the um, chief seats. You know, you know what I always want to know as a kid? I always wanted these chairs here. I always wanted to know why. And because the pastor would sit up there before church would start on Sunday. Okay, Colonel Thiem would sit up there. Pastor Jensen would sit up there. And then someone would be invited to come up and sit with him. And it would be somebody different so, sometimes. Sometimes it's just the song leader week after week or an assistant pastor. Um, sometimes it was a deacon. And sometimes it just and I never understood why at the time. Since then I've actually read, this is kind of a Baptist practice, and there's um, one manual I read actually recommends that the pastor invites a, a different deacon up each Sunday and, uh, and sit there in fellowship with the deacon and, and, uh, and, and whatever. And then the deacon comes over and gives his announcements, and then the deacon goes out and sits, and then the pastor comes over and teaches. And it's just kind of a practice but um i never understood that until i've been a pastor for about 10 years and i start reading these baptist manuals saying uh you know here's here's what you can do on the podium with these extra seats um <laughs> but when i was a little kid i would look up there and i'm wondering what are they talking about because you could see them kind of whispering to each other what are they talking about up there right what are they talking about and i never knew i still don't know and then um I, I flew a couple of years ago, now I flew up to Seattle to conduct the funeral service for my childhood pastor. And um, so where does the Lord put me? I'm sitting in that chair. And the new pastor of that church was sitting right there next to me. And he was the host pastor for the church that held the funeral service, uh, Pastor Schmidt-Liker. And um, it was his church that was hosting the, the service. And uh, and he was going to give an introduction and, and welcome me, and then and then I was going to give the the actual funeral message. So we're sitting there, <laughs> and I leaned over to him because people are filing in and they're sitting out there, and I leaned over to him and I said, "When I was five years old, I used to sit out there, and I used to wonder what these pastors were talking about." <laughs> and he just started laughing, and. Um, Anyway, neither one of us knows, but that's, that's I guess, that's, how the, that's the end of that story. Chief seats. Chief seats. Respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Being called rabbi by men. Now, that one, that one we've got to lock in on. Because not just anybody could call themselves rabbi. 
they had to, I mean, they could, but they would be very quickly dealt with if it was not legitimate. You, you had to have a following. Now, Jesus could claim rabbi. They often called him rabbi because he had disciples. He had men that followed him daily for weeks on end. And, and as he traveled on an itinerant basis, he had followers. And because he had followers, they could not dispute the title rabbi. They wanted to. Oh, they wanted to. Um, because he didn't go to their schools. He, he was not either school of Hillel or the school of Shammai, right? And so because he was not of their schools, they, didn't, they wanted to deny him rabbi status. But he had more disciples than most of those rabbis had, okay? In fact, at his height, he's feeding 5,000 on the mountain. He was having numbers that the, the Sanhedrin was just drooling over, part of why I think they hated him so much. Now, the title of rabbi... And everything that goes with that and being called teacher and being called father. This goes into not only what happens when you attain the rank of rabbi, but then when you attain the rank of um, father status, okay, where now you have descendant rabbis. For example, Paul said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That's 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 what I'm talking about with relationship to this rabbinical um, lineage of a rabbi father and a rabbi son, okay? And, and that's very important because who did Gamaliel sit at the feet of? Gamaliel learned from Hillel. And Hillel was like the greatest of them all, going almost back to uh, probably the greatest since Samuel, okay? They would say Moses the lawgiver, Samuel the scribe, and Hillel the elder, okay? Then after that, Gamaliel, and then after that, uh, Judah Hanasi, probably in the century after Christ. But um, so this is their lineage. And this they, they lived for. They craved for this. This is how their name could live on forever. Their name could live on forever if they had disciples in later decades and centuries and so forth going back to their citing them in their traditions. Okay. And so to to crave these things. I believe this is why Luther and and uh, Calvin were vehemently opposed to anybody naming their names. They didn't want a, a Protestant version of this of this uh, rabbinic practice, and uh, they were not entirely unsuccessful in uh, or successful in in keeping people from naming their names as their followers. All right, so we see this now spelled out in point D. The introduction concludes with warnings and reminders. Warnings and reminders. The warnings are verses 8 through 10. The reminders are verses 11 and 12. And uh, the reminders are the basis for which the warnings are given in 8 through 10. It's about pride versus humility. So our introduction, which is verses 1 through 12, concludes with warnings and reminders. The warnings are against emulating the Mishnaic era of Judaism under the descriptive terminology of rabbi, father, and leader. The warnings are against emulating the Mishnaic era of Judaism under the descriptive terminology of rabbi, father, and leader. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. 
and uh, the leader, the Ha-Nasi, uh, the, the one that rose to preeminence in his generation, who ruled the Sanhedrin, was considered the top dog in this, uh, in this pecking order of, uh, of pride. Uh, but to be a rabbi, his first step, and then to be a father, to have a school of theology or, or interpretation to be, um, to be named for like Hillel and Shammai. Those were the two dominant schools in the uh, life of, of Christ during his lifetime. The school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And, uh, and it's interesting because uh, you could, uh, your, your status as a law keeper or a law breaker could be entirely different based upon which school you were a part of. Because it wasn't a matter of whether you broke the law of Moses or not. Um, it's the law of Moses as interpreted by the school of Hillel or the law of Moses as interpreted by the school of Shammai. And they could be at odds. Often they were. Uh, which, whichever one, I probably had this backwards, but Shammai said that you could divorce, a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. The school of Hillel said no, only for fornication. Okay? And so depending on which school you followed, the school of interpretation, you were either keeping Mosaic Law or breaking Mosaic Law, but as interpreted by that school. And a lot of times when uh, the Pharisees would come to Jesus and ask him, you know, how does it read to you or what, what do you think? They're either asking him to follow one of these schools or establish his own school or something of that nature. And let me just show you. I should have opened this earlier. That's all right. We'll just uh, open up the Mishnah and you'll see what I'm talking about. Now, the Mishnah was written actually after the life of Christ. The, um, and I'm not sure where that, it just opened to where I recently had it open. Um, okay, this is about women. That's That's probably... Safe enough to read on a morning like this. <laughs> um, the Mishnah was written in a century or two after uh, the life of Christ, but it was based upon all of these rabbinic traditions and opinions that were generated during Christ's lifetime and a little bit before. So when you break down the different eras of, uh, of rabbinic history, this, this is what we're dealing with. And so... I can find an example here of where it branches out. It's, it's really structured in a in an interesting way. It'll start with a, a main verse or a main point, and then you're going to have kind of subpoints that string off of that. And uh, 15 women who are near of kin to their deceased childless husband's brother exempt their co-wives and the co-wives from halasa and from Leveret marriage without limit. And these are they. So all the procedure about leveret marriage and having to marry a, the wife of a deceased brother and so forth. And so these are they. His daughter and the daughter of his daughter and the daughter of his son. The daughter by a former marriage of his wife and the daughter of her son by a former marriage. And you see how very quickly we're getting into minutia. <laughs> we're getting into 
jots and tittles and details and sub-sub points. I mean, these guys were lawyers, right? This is, this is legalese. These people invented legalese. His mother-in-law, the mother of his mother-in-law, the mother of his father-in-law, that is, married to his brother by the same father, his sister and the same mother and the sister of his mother and the sister of his wife and, and all these things. Um, and in the case of all of them, if they died before the husband or exercised the right of refusal, were divorced by the childless husband or turned out to be barren, their co-wives are permitted to enter into elaborate marriage since they are not deemed co-wives. Okay, let me scan on down. In, in several of these, and I should have hunted for this before class, in some of these we're going to find differences between different... Here we go, here's a difference. You get to 1-4. The house of Shammai declared the co-wives permitted to enter into elaborate marriage, the brothers... And the house of Hillel declared them prohibited. So there's a difference. And the, the point being is that this was their goal. That they were striving to have a school named after them. They would love to have followers so that they could be called father. Who's the father of the school of Shammai? Shammai. Who's the father of the school of Hillel? Hillel. Right. And then it, it just descends from there. Because by the time you get into the Talmud and by the time you get into medieval Judaism, now you've got all kinds of other lineages that branch out. Okay? To be a disciple of uh, Judah Hanasi, for example, or to be a disciple of, of uh, I mean, there were, there were many of them throughout the uh, subsequent centuries. And so here you start to see some of the uh, distinctions under D there. The house of Shammai declared them invalid for marriage with the priesthood. But the house of Hillel declared them valid. So you can marry into the priesthood with leveret marriage as far as the Shammai is concerned, but not, or as far as Hillel is concerned. Shammai doesn't let you do it. And, uh, and different things there. So that just kind of gives you a sample. And you can see how when you get your name listed there, when you become a father, the things they're lusting after here, to be called rabbi, to be called father, to be called leader, that this... The context for this is not a Roman Catholic context. It's a Judaism context in his exposure of scribe and Pharisee hypocrisy. Okay? Please don't rip this out and, uh, and say, oh, this is a passage that bashes the, uh, the papacy. No, that's not what this passage is doing. So do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. If you have a, uh, if you have a teacher, be thankful for him. Um, but recognize that he's not your teacher. He's a tool. God is using him to teach you. And so, uh, you know, pray for him and that he doesn't get uh, a big fat head full of himself. And uh, do not call anyone on earth your father in this whole thing here. Now, you know, again, lineage is what it is. And, and we appreciate our heritage. I, uh, I will forever, for all eternity, be very thankful that Ralph Braun is the pastor who trained me and the pastor who ordained me. I will always be thankful for that. But my ordination isn't superior to, uh, you know, somebody else's ordination because they had a different pastor who ordained them. Okay, There's no apostolic succession where magic powers are, are handed down and, and bestowed. Different things there. All right. And then again, do not be called leaders. Oh, wouldn't it be terrible? 
I'd roll over in my grave if such a thing was possible. If, uh, you know, 100 years from now, there's uh, a whole school of theology out there called Bolanderism. How ridiculous. Okay? And yet we got Lutheranism, we got Calvinism, we got all these other isms. And uh, that's, that's, that's a snare. All right. There's the warnings. Here's the reminder. The reminder is that self-exaltation leads to divine humiliation. The reminder is that self-exaltation leads to divine humiliation. Every time. Every time. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And I believe that humbling takes place both in time and in eternity. Self-exaltation leads to divine humiliation. You magnify your name. That's an imitation of the God of this age. And God the Father does not tolerate that. Particularly since you are redeemed and you are now called by His name. That Jesus Christ purchased you to deliver you into the kingdom of, of, uh, of God the Father here. You bear His name. So if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Why? Because humbling yourself is the... What do we say? What's our modern idiom? We say imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Yeah, most sincerest form of flattery. Okay, well, imitation. Are we not commanded to be imitators of Christ? And so when we humble ourselves, what are we doing? Legitimate humbling. Not the prideful stuff Matthew 6 is talking about. Legitimate humbling. We're imitating Christ. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And that is an absolute promise. As I said, I believe there are temporal applications of that and eternal applications of that. All right, point four, with one minute left. Um, we start to get to these woes. We're going to develop the seven woes under main point five. Luke's gospel records a similar message to these woes on an earlier occasion. And that's Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. Luke's gospel recorded a similar message of woe on an earlier occasion. Luke 11, 37 through 54. We better understand that now before we start working our way one by one through, through these seven woes. This would have been, if you have your notes, during the last Judean and Perean ministry, episode 12. Last Judean and Perean ministry, episode 12, called Judgment Against Lawyers and Pharisees. So this isn't the first time that Jesus has taken to task the lawyers and the Pharisees. This probably was a theme he preached many times. And now he's got a chance to deliver it live in the temple. <laughs> right? Got an opportunity to preach it right there in the temple. It'd be like, uh, you know, I've done several baptisms, but if the Lord ever opened a door of opportunity where I could actually conduct a baptism in the Jordan River, would I want to do such a thing? That seems kind of cool to me, you know? I mean, baptisms at Barton Springs are kind of cool, but the Jordan River, really? Where Jesus was and John the Baptist was? So, yeah, if that door ever opened, I'd probably take it, Okay. Or if uh, I ever had a chance to preach on in the upper room or to preach on the, the mount. I mean, okay, 
There's a venue. Um, would I ever have a chance to conduct a wedding in Westminster Abbey? <laughs> no, not likely. That's one of the, my, my ordination doesn't exactly qualify for <laughs> for the uh, the Anglican procedures there. So he's taught this previously, and I'm. We'll, we'll start here next week. We'll start here with, I do want to go back to Luke 11. I do want to kind of show you how he taught three woes. And then when he was informed that some people were offended, he taught three more woes and said, oh, yeah, them too. And uh, we'll see um, what is his approach to confrontation when it's faithfulness to the truth that he's defending. Does he back away from the confrontation or does he just hit it as hard as he can? And say, this is the truth. Deal with it. And I think we're going to see that that's the pattern when we evaluate uh, Luke 11. We'll also see other occasions where he was warning his disciples against Pharisee hypocrisy, which is leaven, and uh, things there in Matthew 16 and Luke 12. So we've got to do a little bit of background, and then uh, it should take part of the hour next week. And then after that little bit of background, then we can start jumping into uh, woe after woe after woe after woe. And... Um, and start dealing with them one at a time. Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the humility of our Savior. And uh, Father, we thank you for the stark contrast between um, serpent imitation and, and Savior imitation, Father. And uh, there's one with whom you're well pleased, and there's one that has a fire reserved for him and his angels. And Father, I do pray that we would identify right here, right now, that this lampstand is under tremendous attack and if we're not busy about your business and if we're not on our knees before you in fervent prayer father um i don't know why we're not we need it i thank you father that we have active prayer meetings i thank you father that we're learning scripture memory i thank you that husbands and wives and parents and children are working to to hide your word in in their heart and father uh, i just rejoice that it's your word that's going to sustain us through these difficult times Father, I give you the praise, I give you the glory, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.